0: Hello patrons, Uh, this is the bonus podcast for the 1919 episode, um, which is the 100th episode of the podcast. Uh, Sorry, this episode, this bonus episode is a little bit late. Um, I was out of the office all week this last week at a fellowship, so I was not sort of like at my desk and doing stuff that I would normally be doing. Um, But uh, here we are, we're here, we're going to do it. Uh, This episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about prohibition, uh, which you know, because I talked about it on... um, The main episode. I'm also going to talk a little bit about some other small things that I cut um, from the episode, Um, a tiny bit on what I'm reading, and um, then a secret at the end, as always. So uh, last week's episode was the 100th episode, um, which was so cool and fun, and um, I'm very excited about it And I I had this big plan for the episode to do four different events because four feels like a good number. Um, But as you heard, I only fit three of them in. Um, So uh, some people wrote in saying that they were not happy that I teased Prohibition so much and then I did not deliver it in the episode. Um, And I went back and forth about whether to just cut prohibition from the intro as well and just kind of like n- n- just put it in this bonus podcast but not really like mention that I was going to put it in at all um but I kept it in the intro in part because I didn't want to cut out the voice actor who very kindly uh, volunteered to read the segment um but also just because um I don't know 4 felt like a good number and uh I don't know I just thought that it would be nicer to have have them in in that intro but um I know some people did not like that so anyway um, one of the reasons I cut the prohibition segment, aside from the fact that the episode was already running kind of long, um, was that I didn't actually end up getting to interview the person that I would really wanted to interview for that section. Um, and so what you're going to hear now is basically me talking about this book that I read um, about Prohibition called The War on Alcohol, Prohibition and the Rise of the American State by Lisa McGurr. I had hoped to have Lisa on the show and we kind of emailed back and forth a bunch about it, but we couldn't quite make it work on the schedule in her schedule. So, um, and that was kind of down to the wire to the last minute. I thought maybe I was going to be able to sneak her in under the wire, but um, it didn't quite happen. So, I'm mostly just going to talk to you a little bit about this book, Um, and it's really interesting, and I definitely recommend reading it if, like, this kind of stuff interests you. Um, So I'm going to kind of talk about the book, but obviously, like, the book has a lot more information in it because it's a book. Um, And the reason that I found this book on prohibition so cool and so interesting is that it kind of, like, actively rejects the classic picture that you and I might have of prohibition. Um, So there's like this kind of uh, Hollywood sheen on prohibition these days. You know, we get almost romantic movies about gangsters like Al Capone, um, who took over the alcohol trade. We have these fantasies about speakeasies. Um, and even when prohibition isn't romanticized, it's often sort of dismissed either as a, you know, noble experiment is the term a lot of people use, or as just a ridiculous failure. Um, you know, the 18th amendment is after all, the only amendment ever to be rescinded. Um, but what Lisa argues in this book is that prohibition was actually uh, really critical to the construction of Of the America that we know today. So she argues that the war on alcohol reshaped how politics worked in the US and how communities sort of saw law enforcement. Um, Lisa argues in this book that the 18th Amendment enabled the Ku Klux Klan's rise to power in the 1920s because they often took on the role of prohibition enforcers as a way to terrorize black and brown communities. Um, And the opposition to the war on alcohol, which started as a grassroots campaign and sort of coalesced into something that you United and urban working class base is actually what helped propel Franklin D. Roosevelt into the White House. Not only that, the book also argues that prohibition was in many ways a turning point in the way that the federal government thought about and responded to crime. So because prohibition was totally ineffective and people were breaking the law all the time, the federal government had to kind of streamline everything from record-keeping to prison construction. Uh, In fact, prohibition directly resulted in an increase of power and purview for the FBI. And ultimately, sort of what Lisa argues in this book is that prohibition fundamentally changed the way that the average person thought about the federal government. So where once the response to crime was generally local, Prohibition's enforcement on the federal level made people turn to the federal government for solutions to big problems rather than to their local communities or even states. And when Prohibition failed, the folks who were still really gung-ho about it, the die-hard Prohibition supporters, they turned their attention to another war— Uh, They called it the war against so-called narcotic drugs, which in the 1970s turned into the war on drugs, the official war on drugs, which the United States still spends $51 billion on every year. So there is so much interesting stuff in this book. That's just kind of like a summary. Um, And I definitely recommend that you check out the book. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit on the episode and on this episode because I do think that the way that we talk about prohibition and the Roaring Twenties and the Speakeasies and even the gangsters um, has kind of obfuscated how important this policy was and how much it impacted the country. Before reading this book, I was like, oh, yeah, ha, 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 prohibition. Like, what a ridiculous idea. And now I'm like, oh, wow, prohibition was a ridiculous idea that also completely reshaped the entire nation in some not very good ways. Um, so again, the book is called The War on Alcohol, Prohibition, and the Rise of the American State. I will link to it in the show notes. I definitely recommend that you check it out if you like sort of history and thinking about the ways that history shapes today and the future. Um, it's super interesting. Um, I got it from my local library, so hopefully you can find it there if you don't want to buy it. Um, and again, it's written by Lisa McGurr, M-C-G-I-R-R is her last name. And again, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, okay. So a few other tidbits that I caught from this episode. So one of them is a small detail about the motor convoy. Um, So like I said, the final destination of the motor convoy was San Francisco. And when they got there, there was this like whole to-do to celebrate the completion of the trip. And as part of that, there was a big fancy dinner, obviously. And the Eisenhower Library has a copy of the program for that dinner, which includes a bunch of interesting stuff like the menu for that big dinner. So what did these guys eat when they had finished the trip? Um, They start with California ripe olives, salted almonds, then they go to razor clam chowder, Sacramento River salmon, cold on mayonnaise, (laughs) uh, country fried chicken, hot rolls, evergreen corn on the cob, roast sweet potatoes. Then they got hearts of lettuce with dressing, so salad at the end. And then to wrap up the meal, uh, it was Turkish melon, Overland ice cream, coffee, cigars and cigarettes, California fruits, nuts and raisins. So um, I was actually hoping the menu would be weirder, but it's actually like sounds pretty good to me, although it's a lot of food, I guess, and in an interesting order. Um, And then later on in the program... They talk about, you know, like who their guests of honor are. And then there's a section called For Your Entertainment. And it lists all of the various um, people who – entertained this dinner. And there's this like whole list of people. Um, and one of them caught my eye. It's called the Whistling Doughboy. That's all that you get. It's the only line in here. There's like the San Francisco Jazz Trio, the Sacramento Chamber of Commerce Quartet. You get names like Irma Shin, the California Soprano. And then this is in quotes. It just says the Whistling Doughboy. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> um, okay. So I tried to look this up. And at first I got a bunch of Pillsbury Doughboy commercials. And then I sort of fell down a little bit of a Rabbit hole, looking at like old newspapers for any mention of the Whistling Doughboy, Um, and apparently it is kind of like a a, like vaudeville kind of show put on by a guy who goes by the name Bob White. so I don't still don't totally understand this, but I did read a bunch of these old newspaper clippings. And basically, it seems like Bob White is a stage name for a guy who's actually named Herman Kessis. And Herman Kessis was in the military during World War I. Um, fun fact, soldiers during the war were nicknamed Doughboys, which I actually didn't know until now. Um, and so that's where this name comes from. Kessis was a former doughboy who was very good at whistling. So thus the whistling doughboy. So I'm just actually going to read to you from the February 17th, 1919 issue of the Indianapolis Star where I found a story with the headline, Whistling Doughboy is hit at local theater. Um, And here is the last bit of the article, which actually kind of explains who he is. It says... Private Kessis was gassed and wounded in the fighting at Sedan. He still suffers from his wounds. He gives imitations of the songs of American birds, and while in the trenches and in the hospitals, he used his talent for the entertainment of the wounded soldiers, who dubbed him Bob White. So it seems to be that the Whistling Doughboy was a wounded soldier who performed bird sounds as his act, and apparently he was very good at it. So here's another bit from that Indianapolis star story. It says, Spotting two boys in uniform in the audience, Private Kessis quickly made a change from a mockingbird imitation to that of a German whiz bang. Probably still suffering from shell shock, one of the soldiers shouted, duck, Jimmy, duck, and both went down behind the seats, only to rise blushing. Um, who knows if that actually happened or not. And it's not like funny because PTSD and those kinds of reactions aren't particularly funny, but It is kind of weird to include that in a newspaper article, I guess, about this. Anyway, that seems to be who the whistling Doughboy was, who was, I guess, whistling bird sounds for these soldiers who came all the way from D.C. to San Francisco and then had this dinner for them. Um... So that's, that's that. That's the fun facts. Um, anyway, this is the kind of rabbit hole that I sort of fall down regularly with Flash Forward. Um, and most of the time, that kind of stuff, this kind of stuff that I'm telling you about now gets cut because, like, you don't really need to know about the Whistling Doughboy to understand the story about the 1919 Motor Convoy. Um, but I am glad that I have this little bonus podcast that I can – so I can tell you about these things because I find them really weird and interesting. Um, So I will link to the program and the newspaper article that I just mentioned in the notes for this bonus episode if you want to look at what was happening in 1919 in the Indianapolis Star newspaper. Um, Okay, so that is that. Um, I am hard at work on the last three episodes of the season, um, and they are all super different. One of them is extremely weird. Um, One of them is like way outside my comfort zone, really different from what we usually cover on Flash Forward. And one of them is really commonly requested so um i hope that you like them they are kind of fun and interesting um what i am reading right now is actually mostly stuff for those next three episodes and i don't want to spoil anything for you so i will not say the books that i'm reading um for that but for personal reading i'm starting a book called the city we became by n.k jemisin which comes out next march and i am super excited that i got an early reading copy of it Um, i obviously love n.k jemisin's work um She's been on the show before, um, and I am i think she's just, like, so, so, so talented. Um, I'm also reading a book called Wired Wilderness about the ways that animals and technology interface, which is a book that a listener bought for the show. So thank you, Pierre. Um, if you didn't know, there is actually, like, an Amazon wish list for the show where I just, like, put books that I want to read in there. And if you ever want to buy the show a book, you can do that. Um... Okay. That's pretty much it for this week. Um, It brings us to the secret. Um, The secret this week is that our dog really needs a bath like very badly Um, and she smells really bad, but we're taking her to a boarding place for Thanksgiving pretty soon and they give her a bath at the end of her stay there. So we're just like suffering through the last few days of an extremely smelly dog because we're both too lazy to give her a bath. She smells really bad. This morning, I was like, and she sleeps in the bed because we're those people. Um, and this morning, I was like, this is this is bad. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> but we're just we're gonna just tough it out till she gets her bath at boarding. Um, okay, that's it. I will talk to you soon. I'm sorry this episode was a little bit late, um, but yeah, uh, uh, you'll hear me in your ears on Tuesday for the next episode. Okay, bye.